0: This week on the back table Podcast.
1: It's throughout the procedure, it never stops. From beginning to end, the scanner is running, so you're getting that feedback. Every five, six seconds, you get a new frame that shows you what the temperature is and what the anatomy looks like. Now, I should disclose that the anatomic depiction that we get every five, six seconds is not that phenomenal T2 that you can see everything very clearly. These are images used for the temperature monitoring that allow you to get a sense of where those interfaces are. It's nuanced.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Tulsa Pro is not just another focal prostate therapy. The Tulsa Procedure is a robotically driven, MRI-guided transurethral ultrasound ablation and is FDA-cleared for the ablation of prostate tissue. Using directional ultrasound from the inside out, Tulsa offers you the flexibility to ablate a large variety of prostate volumes customized to each patient's disease in any part of the gland, including to the capsule of the peripheral zone without causing rectal toxicity. By using live MR imaging to prescribe the treatment and real-time MRI thermometry to automatically control the ablation, Tulsa gives you the precision to confidently ablate what you and the patient decide is right for their disease and quality of life. The durability of Tulsa Probe outcomes is backed by over 20 clinical publications reporting up to five-year outcomes physicians are utilizing the technology in patients with prostate cancer, BPH, and post-radiation failure. Learn more about why Tulsa is not just another prostate focal therapy by visiting profoundmedical.com or emailing us at info at profoundmedical.com. Now, back to the show. This is Aditya Bagrodi as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guests today, Daniel Costa and Zhao Song Meng from UT Southwestern Medical Center. How are you guys doing today? We're good. Thank you for having us on, Aditya. Great, Aditya. Thanks for the invitation. Well, I'm really excited to have you on today. You know, when this idea of discussing Tulsa came up, to me it was kind of a no-brainer. Daniel and Zhao Song are very thoughtful clinicians, very meticulous, and I know that as they have rolled out this program at UT Southwestern, it's been done exactly like it should, in my opinion. So really, congrats on the work that you've done today, treating over 100 patients with Tulsa, and really hope to kind of pick your brains on what all lessons learned starting the program over the last few years. And maybe just to kind of jump on into it, why don't we just have like a little introduction into Tulsa
2: as a treatment option for patients with prostate cancer? So Tulsa is kind of the new kid on the block. It's only been FDA approved, I think, since 2019 or so. I think UT started their program in 2020. And the difference between Tulsa and some of the other modalities is it's done in bore, it's done in the MRI magnet, and it's done with ultrasound. So instead of being like HIFU, which is high frequency focused ultrasound, it's transurethral ultrasound, it's a sheet of ultrasound. And the thing I really like best, and Daniel can probably attest to this, is the amount of feedback you get from your treatment. Every five to six seconds you get MR thermometry, you can get a really nice view of exactly where you're heating, where your margins are, where your boundaries are, which I think is different compared to some of the other focal technologies we have out there. And we see men, especially the, a lot of these guys are engineers, really like technology, and they really like kind of what Tulsa represents and the capabilities it represents.
0: Perfect. Daniel, what do you think from your end? How would you kind of just describe this to either a patient or a
1: colleague? Yeah, I think from a radiologist's perspective, the visual nature of the procedure is extremely appealing. As Jasong mentioned, the ability to see in real time both the anatomy and the temperature throughout the entire prostate is extremely reassuring, both for us and I think it's also a concept that the patients have when they visit with us. And they they are super intrigued and excited that we are able to do that during the procedure.
0: So, Hujia Song, if I'm not mistaken, over the course of your training and career, you've been exposed to some of the most frequently used technologies that are out there, and I mean, it really is an exciting time. We have cryo, we have HIFU, we have irreversible electroporation, focal brachy, focal SBRT, and Tulsa kind of as, as a newer one. Are there some, in addition to the visualization of your treatments, are there any other kind of theoretical or real advantages that you perceive?
2: Yeah, so that's a good question. So during residency at NYU, I did, we did focal cryo. You know, I also saw some high foods that NYU was doing. They had both programs. And then here at UT, I've started doing irreversible electroporation on the preserve trial and off trial, as well as CAPTAIN and with Tulsa. And I've also kind of, I know Neil Desai, who's one of our radonks here, you know, talks about the MR-LINAC and the HDR brachy program that they do with Dr. Garant. And, you know, it's certainly, I agree, it's a great time to be in prostate cancer. I think this is likely going to change how we treat intermediate risk prostate cancer in the future with all these different new technologies coming on board. You know, I think one of the benefits, obviously, with Tulsa is that we're going urethra out, right? So I think, uh, and the company's very careful about this in terms of when we're blading near the rectum, they're very careful about making sure we don't overdraw our, where we want to blade. But at the moment, you know, out of about 3,000 cases around the world, there's been no recto urethral fistula this way. Right? Even though I think, you know, cryo with the thermometry or the thermocouples, Haifu you know, the rates are coming down. I don't think the <laughs> rates of rectal urethral fissures I would say are one or 2% with both of these technologies. I think going from urethra out, it certainly gives us some benefit of avoiding the rectum. I also think when you come in, if you're to do a salvage procedure, Dr. Wilburn's done two salvage uh, procedures post Tulsa, the plane is not as horrible as, you know, post some of these other focal modalities, because I think we're preserving that posterior plane better.
0: Okay. And Daniel and I were kind of talking before we actually formally started It's a little bit tricky and challenging now with the direct to patient advertising, medical centers, advertising and so on and so forth, where, you know, I've got patients with grade group five prostate cancer coming in and say, hey, doc, I want to receive HIFU or they have grade group one prostate cancer and they're like, can I get lutetium PSMA treatment for my grade group one prostate cancer. And, you know, you're, you're having to kind of explain that this is a very heterogeneous disease. Every patient is a little bit different. And, you know, with that, you know, who are your kind of ideal patients when you're, you know, a new diagnosis comes in? What are the kind of features that you're like, you know, this might be a good patient for Tulsa?
1: In our case, our ideal patient is the intermediate risk patient with localized disease, ideally also focally. uh, It's certainly easier to treat lesions that are either in the lateral or anterior portion of the gland where you're less concerned about injury to either a neurovascular bundle. Medium sized prostates because there is a maximum radius that uh, the ultrasound beam can reach. So if the lesion is more than three centimeters away from the urethra, we may have trouble reaching that region. We certainly want to also exclude uh, large calcifications in the prostate that could act as a shield barrier that prevents the ultrasound beam from reaching the area to be treated. We also, a patient that we are eager to treat are patients who had radiation and have recurrent disease, so salvage post-radiation is usually a good patient for Tulsa, and also although not the core of our patient population. Some patients with lower-risk disease who are extremely uncomfortable with the idea of active surveillance, and that happen to have LUTs because we can tackle both BPH and the cancer at the same time. Fantastic. So a couple of questions.
0: You mentioned significant calcifications. Is that something that is kind of standard reporting when you're doing an ultrasound biopsy, for instance, or are you getting some type of imaging,
1: non-contrast CT, or so forth to assess? Yeah, as we learned that calcifications play such an important role in patient selection, we tweaked our prostate MR protocol so that when a patient comes to get a diagnostic MRI, there is a sequence that aims specifically at identifying calcifications. In patients who are referred from outside institutions and did not get an MRI with us, Some of them may require a CT of the pelvis to look for those calcifications. Ultrasound, in theory, can see calcifications, but because there is not a standard approach to how this is done, it's hard to retrospectively look at those images and be sure that the patient did have appropriate screening for those calcifications.
2: And I think Daniel's really led the charge there in terms of you know helping us work up our patients better with the cal- issues of calcifications because it's not only kind of size its location you know if it's a calcification on the other side of the prostate that you're not ablating you really don't care about it so I think that's where the cross-sectional imaging comes into play and the fact that we're able to get this part of every single diagnostic MRI has really helped speed up the process now we're not asking patients hey we're going to know the CT. We'll figure out if you're eligible for Tulsa. It's like, here's your lesion. Here's your calcifications. It's all in the same imaging sequence. And I think that's really streamlined the workflow there. And Daniel, you mentioned size of
0: the prostate. What about size of the lesion? Is that a relative or absolute contraindication?
1: It doesn't seem to be. What you want to make sure is that the lesion is not too close to the structures that you don't want to cause any damage to. So the external urethral sphincter, the neurovascular bundles, the bladder neck but a large lesion in a ideal location should not be an issue just because it's large. Going back to the calcifications discussion, also an example of how we are learning about the technology as we use it. In some men with large calcifications in a location where we do not see that as a problem, we sometimes see that large calcification is not really as much of a barrier to energy delivery as we thought it would be. And in some men where we do not see any large calcification, we sometimes see a challenging penetration of that tissue. So we are learning that there might be some tissue properties that interfere with the ultrasound dissipation and the heat distribution that we are not as aware of today as we'd like.
0: Okay, you mentioned kind of proximity to critical structures the sphincter, the bladder neck, and the, the nerves. You know, I think generally the way I think about it for most of the ablation technologies, the apex is a bit tricky. Is that true in your estimation for
1: HIFU, or is this an area that's a little bit more amenable to HIFU? It is true. We like to have at least a five millimeter distance from the US. It's also interesting because each man the anatomy is slightly different from one another so the the angle the steepness of the angle that you see the apex and the relationship between the us and the apical most portion of the prostate we sometimes see a us that is almost intraprostatic, whereas in some men there is a, a larger distance between those two structures. So I would say these aren't set in stone, these numbers, and we really need to look at every single patient in depth to see if he is a good candidate or not. And that takes quite a bit of time, and it's an involved uh, process for sure. I do feel one thing
2: about, you know, we've treated a few patients where their tumor is almost touching their external sphincter. And I think we've had, you can kind of position the device in and out. You can kind of put where your last ablation, you know, element is. And you can put it very close to the sphincter. And so far for the few guys that we've treated where the tumor has been touching the sphincter, they've not had stress urinary incontinence, which, you know, I find encouraging. They certainly have more LUTs in the short term, I think, from swelling of the treatment. But at the moment, I think, you know, for those that are very, very close to, you know, I think we were able to kind of skirt the fine line because of how detailed the anatomy is. You're getting real-time MRI images to do your planning, and the ability to control the degree of heating, I think, is very good. And then that certainly, I think, is one of the benefits if you're treating things close to critical structures with this technology.
0: No, that's good to know. And when I came to UC San Diego, we had recently purchased the capital equipment for Haifu, and I had in my mind, as somebody that was going to be offering this treatment to patients that I wanted them to be ideal, favorable, intermediate risk, posterior lesions, MRI detectable, rest of the prostate, negative on systematic biopsies. And fast forward about nine months, I'd done one HIFU and I had to kind of slightly extend the criteria. And it sounds like perhaps as you guys have obtained more experience, it may go from the perfect patient, if you will, to somebody that there's going to be a little bit of a trade-off, a little bit of managing some risk and uncertainty And a quick question are these patients currently being done on trial mostly or is, or is it a multidisciplinary you've, you've had a chance to discuss surveillance radiation surgery, ablation? I you mean know the consensus is ablation via Tulsa.
2: you know so these patients come in to come in both ways They either come in to see me directly or see one of the partners and they get referred to me for discussion of Tulsa or they'll come and see Daniel from radiology and then Daniel will talk to them and then send it to me and I'll kind of broaden the discussion a little bit. Some patients come in just with the diagnosis of prostate cancer and we tell them this is one of the options and I'll counsel them extensively you know in terms of surveillance, radiation, surgery and the fact that we have these different focal modalities including both Tulsa and IRE. And that's one of the ways we kind of counsel them about it. Some patients are coming just for Tulsa. So, you know, I'll have to kind of take a step back, be like, hey, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? You know, in addition to Tulsa as an option. Going back to, I think what you were talking about in terms of kind of selection criteria, I think Tulsa and Haifu are slightly different, you know, because Haifu's is coming rectum up. I actually feel that the anterior lesions are some of the best patient outcomes I get with Tulsa, these guys will leave kind of you know very nice margins around the nerve vascular bundle they're having you know sexual activity before they even see me at one month i usually tell them hey let's hold off for a month but these guys are equipment's working and they'll be like well i I ejaculated blood and i'm just like well i asked you to hold off for a little bit but certainly you know i think those are the ones because even if we're gentle near the nerves for posterior tumors i think they're just from the local effect inflammation someone will have erectile dysfunction temporarily and that when we see that in the TAC trial we see that in our data as well so, one of my initial patients, just
0: to be quite frank, was a patient, and this is for HIFU, with an anterior lesion. And I didn't know that you couldn't bypass the posterior parts of the prostate in terms of no ultrasound energy prior to getting to the apex. And fortunately, I had a senior partner that was proctoring me and were able to kind of manipulate the catheter and so on and so forth. But it is kind of nice that the critical structures, broadly speaking, are more peripheral and particularly the nerves, of course, and you have an opportunity to kind of get away from those. Ablation, there's focal ablation, there's hemiablation, there's hockey stick ablation, there's whole gland. How do you kind of think about this when you're looking at you know multifocal tumors, bilateral tumors? What is the kind of capabilities or limitations of, of Tulsa?
1: Yeah, I think that's a major strength of Tulsa is the ability to really customize and literally draw what you want to treat. And that is a two-edged sword. It's uh, great to have that ability, but at the same time, it puts on us the responsibility to use it wisely. In order to do so, we have to have a conversation with the patients that uh, allow us to understand what's their priority. And these aren't usually a very straightforward conversation because we really have to grasp what's their baseline function, urinary and sexual function wise and what they value the most when it comes to balancing oncologic outcome and quality of life preservation. I can certainly tell that at the beginning, there was a trend towards being more focal. And as we learned, and as we got cancer on repeat biopsies, and as we started to expand the volume of ablation and not see a higher rate of complications, or a more cumbersome recovery. Our more recent trend is towards having larger volume ablations provided that we can safely avoid those critical structures that we want to stay away from. But it is a conversation between all the stakeholders, right? And that includes the wife that is in the visit with us. It's an opportunity to really go over this and also on the day of the treatment, the radiologists and the urologists are there talking to the patient, recapping the plan, and making sure making sure that we are all on the same page.
2: Yeah, and I think part of that goes to the workup that we do before Tulsa, right? So we'll do uroflow bladder scans. For the, some of the guys, I'll even do the Proud P app, so we'll get kind of home baseline urinary function to see if do we want to treat your BPH. You know, how's your baseline sexual function? And some of these patients will come in wanting to... Preserve much, as much of ejaculate volume as possible, and I'd say, hey guys, we're, we're treating cancer here. Like ejaculate volume is secondary to to cancer control, but I think certainly it's this whole spectrum of, and I think Tulsa, I agree with Daniel. It's very easy to to just almost do whole gland, and and certainly. Around the U.S., about half the treatments last year have been whole gland. The rest are more focal than that, or hemigland. But I think part of it is also your systematic biopsies. If you have cancer in your systematic biopsy cores, that may be in a slightly different location. You may be more inclined to say, hey, look, we should probably treat whole gland to decrease contralateral disease recurrence and things like that.
0: We've actually, for patients that have an elevated PSA and MRI with a focal lesion and they're getting their MRI ultrasound fusion biopsy, well, many times if even the thought of focal is entering our brains, get kind of halo biopsies like has been described by the UCLA group just to avoid that recurrence near the field. And it sounds like probably over time when you look back at things, you're like, huh, we're getting a a little bit more of an infield recurrence than we might like and we can expand our ablation volume. So just kind of, I think we've largely covered cancer characteristics, a couple of questions. So Daniel, you mentioned intermediate risk. Does favorable versus unfavorable kind of weigh into that at all? It does not. Okay. So 4 plus 3 equals 7, that's still going to be an acceptable patient. And then my understanding, Song, is that you did suggest that whole gland ablation is absolutely a viable option. And if you have patients with, say, clinically significant cancer, whether that's 3 plus 4 equals 7, 4 plus 3 equals 7, I'd say the left and the right's got a couple of cores of grade group 1 would you typically treat the whole gland or would you maybe
2: downgrade them to surveillance patients? That's a great question. I think part of that is what the patient wants. It's obviously a a long conversation in terms of counseling. I think the majority of guys are okay with you treating as much as we can of the prostate. But certainly I kind of tell my patients when I counsel them on focal is that this is like actor surveillance plus. We're treating your cancer and then we're putting you right back on surveillance. So if if you're someone who's not going to be willing to do MRIs, you're not going to be willing to do PSAs, close follow-up, you're probably not a good candidate for focal, right? You know, compared to surgery or radiation, where it's just blood tests every few months, this requires we mandate an MRI at one year, we mandate a prostate biopsy at one year. On some of the trials, like Captain Trout's MRI plus biopsy at one in two years. On the IRE trials, mandated biopsy. So I tell these guys, look, this is not a one-stop-and-done. It's a long process. It's a relationship between you and the urologist and the radiologist with Daniel when they come back for their biopsies and MRIs that it's, you know, you need to have close follow-up. Perfect. And yeah, we'll dig into that once we've kind of gotten through the treatment.
0: So patient characteristics, maybe to summarize their location, really ideally not next to the urinary sphincter, preferably not near the um, nerve bundles or the bladder neck. But those are, of course, going to be conversations. Or there may be some give and take here if you could do a unilateral nerve sparing, for instance. Focality doesn't seem like it's a driver here, that you can treat as much of the prostate as you want. Size, more of a prostate size, three centimeter criteria than a lesion size. Apex, again, not ideal, but case by case, manageable. And then contralateral grade group one, have a conversation about it. Now, one of the things that was kind of intriguing to me, Daniel, is when you mentioned a grade group one patient with LUTs. So maybe let's, let's talk about a little bit of patient characteristics, further anatomy, median lobe, erectile function, urinary function, previous turp previous euro lift where they may have some you know clips in their prostate do you want to maybe talk about some relative and absolute
1: contraindications from your end sure so what we do know is the ultrasound beam can reach and we can measure temperature reliably within a three centimeter radius that's guaranteed beyond that it's uncertain so if you have a man with a prostate, and a lesion that is borderline at that radius or beyond that radius, you may find yourself in a position where you can't really reach that region and therefore unable to treat that man properly. What we've done in some men is put those men on a 5-ARI regimen to shrink that prostate and repeat imaging to reassess the anatomy. In most men, that was successful. Because what happens is most of those men, you were borderline 3 centimeters, 3.2 centimeters. And then we, after three months on 5-ARI, we see a 10-15% volume reduction that brings that area to within the reachable area. In regards to clips, seeds, I don't think any man has been treated with a Eurolift device. There have been patients not at our institution where the urolift device was removed and then treated but i don't have direct information about how that went we've treated patients for salvage post-radiation with both fiducial markers and brachytherapy seeds the fiducial markers so i think it's a similar concept to the calcifications these foreign bodies they introduce noise in the images that measure real-time temperature that can affect the quality of the treatment by providing poor quality information to the system that is meant to modulate the output of energy. It may appear, for example, as if an area that has not been heated yet is extremely hot, even though it isn't, and then the system will not deliver energy to that region because it assumes that that is already a hot area. So whenever we are assessing a patient with those metallic clips, be it fiducial marker or brachytherapy seed. What we want to make sure is that those areas, how they relate to the area that we want to perform the ablation. In some men, what we can do is we can run a simulation. So we bring the patient and run a thermometry map to see how much noise would be generated by those clips or those seeds. The men that we treated after going through this vetting process They did not seem to be an issue. We don't have long-term outcome data for those men, but the impression from the day of the treatment was extremely favorable. But it does require quite a bit of care when drawing the treatment area on the day of the treatment to make sure that we do not include voxels that could misinform the system and result in under-treatment of critical regions. So this may sound like a dumb question and I should have probably covered
0: a little bit about the mechanism of action for Tulsa. So we've got this probe in the urethra and it's able to send high intensity ultrasound waves from the inside out, right? And I'm kind of thinking of like a breaky patient and let's say they've got like seeds throughout and let's say they've got some brachy seeds anterior to their urethra and you want to treat something even more anterior to that, for instance. Can your ultrasounds Penetrate through those brachy seeds, or is that going to be like where they stop, like similar to like a calcification? You mentioned the the impact on thermometry, but what about the effective treatment getting to the area of interest?
1: Yeah, so you're right in the sense that the urethral probe has elements that deliver ultrasound that results in tissue heating. The way it works is the system uses the pixels closer to the periphery of the Area that we drew as the area to be treated to reform the system that sector has already been heated properly. So it assumes that if it's hot at the periphery, that entire sector has been properly heated. And that's how it knows whether or not to continue to deliver energy in a certain region or move on to another region. In regards to whether those clips or mark or fiducial marker or brachytherapy seed could be a physical barrier to the ultrasound beam penetration. What we notice on an MRI in a patient with recurrent post-radiation cancer is that the cancer, as it grows, it moves the seeds away. And it's actually when we're reviewing these patients, when we're interpreting these images, we always look for areas where we don't see that many seeds because those are areas that either there is something growing that is pushing the seeds apart or maybe there weren't seeds there to begin with, and that's the area where the treatment failed. So that helps us because that is the area that we want to ablate, right? So in general, there is a paucity of seed in those regions. That may not be true for the fiducial markers, but because the fiducial markers tend to be put in a sort of like a structured fashion, and they are so few, it's uncommon that they will be right in a critical location, but it has to be evaluated case by case fantastic and then just going back to the kind of lower urinary tract symptoms are
0: these patients are they getting pre-ablation you mentioned the five ari's which may help out with symptoms if they've got a larger prostate median lobes does that impact anything at all history of strictures previous terp or if they have like significant frequency urgency are those contraindications or or how do you kind of synthesize all of their lower urinary tract symptoms previous kind of bph history when you're when you're considering treatment
2: That's a good question because certainly these guys are a little bit more complex to treat. We've had a few guys with kind of urethral structures where we basically said, look, it's not a good idea. You've already had two urethroplasties, you know, doing this. I think it's a 22 French urethral applicator, and it's in there for two to three hours, you know, could certainly cause damage and and worsening of your structure. So we've had a few patients where we said, probably not the best idea to consider Tulsa for you. We have treated patients who have had prior history of terp, green light, things like that, and it seems to be okay. We've treated some patients with median lobes, So you have about a five centimeter reach. So not only do you have three centimeters from the urethra out to the periphery, the actual length, there's 10 elements, they're five millimeters apart. So you actually have a five centimeter treatment length uh, within the prostate. And you can also pull back and treat more. So if you have a longer prostate, so certainly we can treat median lobe. You just basically shut off the beam because you do worry about some transmission within the urine to the bladder wall. So that's one of those areas that we're very careful of if you're treating a median lobe. These guys do have a lot of urgency frequency. The more volume we treat, the more symptoms they have. And and I think in some ways it's probably like resume, right? You're heating up the prostate. In resume, you're injecting steam into the prostate. Here we're heating the prostate about 55 degrees. At the periphery, certainly hotter inside. I mean, they get swelling and they have decent obstructive symptoms for the first four to six weeks is what I usually counsel my patients. You're gonna be miserable for the first month and things will slowly get better and better. They get put on alpha, so they get put on rapaflow to start before and after. The procedure to help with some of the LUTs, the more we treat, the longer I'll leave the catheter in up to about two weeks for these guys with large 60, 70 cc prosthetics where we do near whole gland ablation on. We're also starting to explore some of the other things, maybe giving, of course, of steroids to help with inflammation and SADS and things like that to really help with their symptoms afterwards.
0: Okay. It's like you were reading my mind, gel Song. I was going to ask for your kind of spiel slash consent process for... We've identified the patient, and and if I may, it sounds like symptomology isn't a contraindication. They've got an AUA symptom score of 22 or so. Could this be a reasonable benefit to them from a lowering symptom perspective once they get through that initial kind of four to six week post-treatment inflammatory irritation episode. As you all know, we've treated men with larger prostates or significant luts that are going on to receive radiation. Many times we'll do like a terp or so forth on the front end or a median lobectomy or whatever has been kind of decided in conjunction with the radiation oncologist. How do you kind of factor that in? Is that, is that a relative or a absolute contraindication? For and
2: alone, I don't count that as an absolute contraindication. It certainly is one of those, it's counseling, and occasionally I'll send them for urodynamics. And, you know, if their symptoms are really bad or they're having urgency incontinence already, I'll send them for urodynamics to get a good baseline. When we looked at our kind of data, looking at IPSS, looking at guys using FloMax or Appaflow, about a third of them actually have improved IPSS scores at six months, and... I think the vast majority of them are stable. We do have, I think, less than 10% of them who have worse IPSS on follow-up, but it's certainly, we see a change at three months, it's a better change at six months. Just like those guys that we turp with kind of LUTs, they will improve, you know, it's not the immediate effect after a terp or the kind of the slow kind of bladder remodeling, but we do see it. It's usually, I tell them it's months. It's not anything quick. It's gonna be on the order of probably three to six months.
0: Okay. so. Now the decision has been made, they don't have any calcifications or relative or absolute conjugation. It's an appropriate patient in your mind. What is that? You know, here's what to expect
2: leading up to the day of. So this starts with the prep process. So it's a pretty aggressive prep because we really want to clean out the colon. We want to decrease bowel motion because one of the side effects of bowel motion is it introduces noise and motion into your MR thermometry. So they get a, a Miralax prep, almost like a colonoscopy prep, clear liquids before the procedure for a day, sometimes two days. They'll get enema night before, they'll get an enema prior to the procedure in pre-op. This will are as best as we can attempt to get them as clean out as possible. They'll get glucagon to decrease kind of rectal wall motion and bowel motion during the treatment. They'll get those twice and i kind of spend a good amount of time with these guys before the procedure to be like hey these are our side effects we're going to talk about because i found that if i don't prep them enough they'll come back and be like hey i'm more miserable or it generates a lot of phone calls to my office so i try to at least kind of prep them ahead of time of what they're going to find you know, just from kind of so we've treated about a little over 120 patients so far now about a little i think 10 of them are salvaged the rest of them are primary the number one complaint i get is my semen volume is less so that's my first thing on the consent you will have much less semen volume or dry ejaculate after this procedure despite sometimes our efforts to spare like you know the it's amazing with mri you can see the ejaculatory ducts and we'll try to spare them sometimes when it's appropriate and i haven't found a great correlation to semen volume whether we spare the ejaculatory ducts or not and then i talk about urinary frequency urgency symptoms I talk about a lot of these guys will have urgency incontinence in the first four to six weeks just from the irritation of the bladder and the prostate. We're causing a good amount of swelling, but I rarely see stress incontinence. I think stress incontinence, I'd put it at probably one or two percent, but mainly urgency incontinence certainly within the first few weeks that generally gets better. So those are kind of, and then we talk about effects on erections. The data from TAC from a lot of our guys, you know, you'll have kind of one month is kind of worse erectile function they're going to get. And then it's a slow gradual improvement over the next three to six months to a year. So some of these guys are pretty aggressive on penile rehab. When I see them, if they're not having good erectile function, trying to keep blood flow going to the penis as, as best as we can. And then I'll talk about small risk of retention. We've had some patients with going to retention, especially if they've had larger prostates, older bladders, more distended bladders, and then kind of all the risks of any time we operate. You know, there's a small risk for infection. Do you guys use antibiotics? We do. We give them usually ceftriaxone. Okay. And in kind
0: of a standard patient, typically how long is a catheter staying in?
2: So kind of the shortest is probably five days. That's truly like a focal, maybe a quadrant or a quarter of the prostate to somewhere between to about two weeks if we're doing a full near whole gland ablation.
0: Okay. And then of course, cancer control, how do you kind of counsel them on? So we talked about urine impact, sexual function impact, including ejaculate components. And then here's what you can expect in terms of being cured of your cancer. What does that
2: conversation look like? Yeah, I usually start off and say, look, you know, this is more experimental compared to surgery radiation. We don't have good long-term data, but we do have data from, you know, all those HIFU trials, all those cryo trials, and we can extrapolate, right? So if we're doing, I think, true focal, I usually quote about 20, 25% chance of recurrence. Some of this will be marginal recurrence. Some will be contralateral prostate recurrence. The TAC trial, four-year outcomes from the TAC trial, this was whole gland, but it was kind of a single pass, a little bit different from how we do it now. We've I think Daniel and I have kind of learned along the way that, you know, as the prostate swells, if you don't count for that swelling when you're doing your treatment, you can leave kind of marginal recurrences. And in the TAC trial, they were not allowed to do more than one pass. So I certainly think by doing more than one pass, we were improving our cancer outcomes. In the TAC trial, four years, 16% underwent additional treatment. I'll usually counsel them that if we do whole gland, I would expect the rates of recurrence to go down, but I don't have great data to back that up yet because we're still kind of doing our long-term data analysis. But if we're doing truly focal, I think a quarter is not unreasonable to quote them.
0: Okay. Are you ever prophylactically putting suprapubic tubes
2: in for patients that have a elevated PVR, things along those lines? We haven't. I know in the TAC trial, everyone got a suprapubic tube. We may want to start, you know, I was going to talk to Daniel about that for some of these guys, especially for the ones that have larger processing, I have to leave catheter in for a while, or they may have to go back in at two weeks. Maybe we should consider a suprapubic tube prophylactically. But for the most part, most of these guys, I've actually had guys start CIC at two weeks without significant issues.
0: Okay. They've been consented. They've been adequately warned about, you know, all the side effects and they've gotten their colon prep and, and here we are the day of the procedure. So let's try to like really organically walk through what that looks like. I mean, first off location, is this happening in the hospital at an ambulatory surgery center or like the same spot where people are getting image-based procedures? Where is this actually taking place?
1: Here, this takes place at our university hospital. The reason being we need uh, access to anesthesia and that's where we can have that. So uh, what we need is anesthesia, MRI, and in our case, radiology and urology coverage. So we do this at our university hospital, and at the beginning of the procedure, we have the radiologist and the urologist talk to the patient, recap what the treatment plan is, whether it's a hemiablation, whether it's a near hole gland ablation, and we do the timeout. Then we have the urologist place the devices, and these are two devices, the urethral applicator and the endorectal cooling device. The patient is imaged and we assess for the device location. So you want to make sure that the urethra applicator is in the intraprostatic urethra and that the indirectal cooling device is in the surface of the indirect cooling device is just opposed to the portion of the anterior rectal wall that is in closer contact with the prostate. We want to make sure that there is no air between the indirect cooling device and the rectal wall because that air can also misinform the system about temperature, during the temperature monitoring that feeds the system and controls the energy delivery. Once those steps are taken care of, after we determine that the devices are in the proper position, we start to draw the treatment plan. Sorry to interrupt, is this done
0: supine? Is this done lithotomy? How is the patient positioned? It's a semi
1: lithotomy There are leg extenders that keep the patient in that position under general anesthesia. And the sequences, are those T2s or are you getting multiple modalities? What's the kind of typical protocol? The first set of images are very quick T2s to see the anatomy and how it relates to the location of the devices. And then we will get, as we know that the devices are in the right position, we'll get slightly more sophisticated uh, tissues that give better depiction of the anatomy. That will be the basis for drawing the area to be treated. And those are images that give us very good view of the tumor, neurovascular bundles, the external sphincter, so, it really sets the foundation to, to draw the treatment plan. We can also supplement that with diffusion weighted imaging in patients who have cancers that are difficult to see on T2, but that's rarely required. Okay. And then for the actual urethral applicator placement, is that a
0: cysto
2: wire over a wire, or is that just placed like a catheter? So we do a council tip catheter first, empty out the bladder, put a little bit of fluid back into the bladder, super stiff wire, and then we put the urethral applicator over the super stiff wire. It's a rigid urethral applicator, so kind of like putting in a rigid cystoscope, it usually goes in no problem over the wire. Okay, perfect, perfect. And the rectal cooling device, that's roughly what diameter,
0: you know, are you doing anything on the front end to just, and I'll tell you why I asked this is I had a colleague of mine doing a high food case and post-radiation and the patient had fairly significant anal stenosis. And, you know, suffice it to say that that was kind of a deal breaker day of surgery. Any kind of assessment of
2: that going into this? It's a decent diameter. I don't know the exact dimensions of it. I would say it's probably at least two centimeters across. Certainly if, if you have trouble getting your finger in the rectum for a DRE, probably not a good candidate for this. I know Dr. Lotan had treated a patient post-radiation with, with pretty tight anus and he did have a little bit of struggle getting it in. But if you, if you had, I guess, a
0: fairly uneventful prostate biopsy with a transrectal probe. Is that usually going to be okay?
2: Yeah, I think that's a, that's actually a good good benchmark.
0: Okay, great. I hope these details aren't boring for you guys. I just want to make this some of the practical considerations that I've thought about and maybe others have thought about. So we've just gotten to placing our urethral applicator and our rectal cooling device. And now we're, we're taking our sequences, making sure that things are in the appropriate
1: position and, and drawing out our, our treatment plans. That's right. So when deciding what to treat, we normally already had that conversation with the patient and urology and radiology already extended information. So we already go into the treatment day knowing what we plan to do. When we get those images, then it's a matter of putting there that in practice. Right? So we will find where the cancer is. So let's suppose it's an S-focal as focal as can be treatment. So we find the cancer We try to have at least a one centimeter safety margin in as many directions as possible, so that almost invariably results in a minimum of a, as uh, Jalsang was saying, a quadrant ablation. It's very uncommon that you'd have such a small lesion that you'd be able to get away with less than that. The way the system works is you have different elements in the urethral probe, each element. You can think of it as a five millimeter slab in the transverse direction of the prostate. So you can turn on or off those different slabs. And that's how the treatment operates. So you choose which elements you're going to use and what is the transverse section of each of those elements that you want the ablation to have. Then you choose, if you think of the prostate as a, a face clock, clock face you will choose where you want to start, let's say at 12 o'clock or at 3 o'clock, and then in which direction, clockwise or counterclockwise, since the probe sweeps in one of those two directions. Usually, what we want to do is to start treating where the cancer is, because if something happens, if we have to abort, or if there is swelling as we are treating, the area that is the most critical region to be covered has already been covered, Once we do that first sweep, we normally do at least a second sweep where the MRI visible lesion is, and we tend to do that in the opposite direction of the first sweep. What we noticed is in some men that have tiny calcifications or that have some tissue properties that we can't recognize but result in a suboptimal heat distribution, sometimes we have a much better heat distribution when we're coming in a different direction. This is something that hasn't been studied, but it's, it's a consistent anecdotal observation at our center and in other centers as well.
0: Okay. It certainly sounds like this is where the battle for a good cancer procedure is going to be won and lost, which is going to be careful contouring, really being dialed in on temperature maximums at, at various different time points. I mean, some of it sounds like kind of a repeat freeze-thaw cycle of cryoablation with the multi-pass that you're describing here. But this is where I'm guessing it's going to be a little bit more technologically involved and ostensibly you're going to get fairly heavy support, at least early on from your local representative. Is that true? Absolutely.
1: Yes. It is uh, easy to watch a video of what a Tulsa procedure looks like and think that it's a plug and play technology that you just push a button and you're there waiting for the procedure to be done before you say goodbye to the patient. But that's not true. It requires close monitoring during the treatment, as uh, Jalsang alluded to, and that's something that we learned uh, after maybe 10, 15 patients that we had treated. It's very common for the gland to swell in response to the heating. And if you're dealing with a very peripheral lesion, especially posterolateral lesions, it's very easy to go unnoticed that the lesion with the swelling now falls outside of the originally drawn area. And that can be easily a source of under-treatment and cancer-on-repeat biopsy. So it's important to monitor, and that's one of the strengths of Tulsa is the ability to do so. You can see that the, the gland is swelling or that the bladder is getting fuller, and therefore this results in a little bit of a change in some displacement at the base of the prostate. So recognizing that and uh, responding to it is a critical step in order to have adequate treatment. So, how often are you running your
0: mri sequences and forgive my ignorance you're obviously on it you know if it's an ultrasound and it's high food you can look at cavitations or if it's cryo you're looking at the ice ball we don't have any real-time monitoring here right so is it just let's run the t2 again and how long does that take and
1: how often are you doing it it's throughout the procedure it never stops from beginning to end the scanner is running and so you're getting that feedback every five six seconds you get a new frame that shows you what the temperature is and what the anatomy looks like. Now, I should disclose that the anatomic depiction that we get every five, six seconds is not that phenomenal T2 that you can see everything very clearly. These are images used for the temperature monitoring that allow you to get a sense of where those interfaces are where the interface between the prostate and the periprostatic fat is it's nuanced so you really have to be looking for this it's not something that pops out it's so obvious that the gland is swelling and that's one of the reasons why there's a learning curve and it requires constant monitoring
2: yeah and going back to your question earlier did about the support from the company so you know there is always someone from the company there for the treatment and even even now, 120 cases in, someone still comes, they, they record data, you know, they do a lot of kind of granular data in terms of how long are you taking to prep the room, put the devices in, do your planning, your treatment, any issues. So that's one nice thing about it is that is, you know, you'll have an expert from the company there to at least kind of help you. And then sometimes it's like the MRI machine's not working, you know, like, and, and they'll help you kind of troubleshoot some, you know, things like that with the MR techs, which I, you know, is, is helpful.
0: Yeah, I guess so in addition to the urologist, radiologist, anesthesiologist, you would
2: need an MRI technician as well. Is that correct? Yeah, there's usually at least two or three around. (laughs) Coming from the R is nice. You know, there's so many people around to help out. And going back to one of your earlier questions about the different areas. So, you know, we do it obviously in the hospital. They do have kind of freestanding imaging centers where urologists can bring patients to treat. They even have like a Uh, there's a mobile van now or mobile truck that they can treat. And some of these are done in the OR, you know, like all those at at St. Louis University, they're doing theirs in their MR suite in the OR. So it's kind of a whole variety of different areas of where people are getting treated.
0: Okay. And then like a typical straightforward quarter or hemigland, you know, that's going to be three hours. Is that kind of my understanding? Is that your experience as well? Of course, there's going to be patient-specific
1: variability. Is that typical? Yeah, so the ablation time, which is one of several steps in the entire treatment time, is directly dependent on the volume of ablation and the number of sweeps that uh, we choose to do. The quickest ablation we can do is 20 to 30 minutes, but the average ablation time is around one hour. Now, when you add the other steps, right, so general anesthesia, patient positioning, device placement... In many instances, the devices need to be repositioned or there is a, an annoying air bubble that needs to be addressed. And then removing the devices, putting the fully catheter and waking up, it's usually a three hour procedure time. Okay, and then, so you've completed the
0: procedure, you place a catheter and several hours in the PACU, kind of standard discharge criteria, and then um, you've gotten through it, is that right?
2: Yeah, so uh, I think maybe we have one or two patients stay because it was late, but for the most part, everyone goes home same day. Catheter, they get a few days of antibiotics. They get a course of antispasmodic medications. So we do lefacin to help them with bladder spasms, stool softeners. I don't have to give any narcotics. It's pretty rare. Most of the time, these patients do just fine our Tylenol ibuprofen. Yeah. They go home and then I'll see them a month out. I'll see them a month out to kind of check in on them, see how they're voiding. I usually give them some time to let kind of the inflammation and stuff cool down. We'll see them at one month. Uh, If they're on the clinical trial with the CAPTAIN trial, they'll get a PSA at one month. Otherwise, I usually get my first PSA at three months and we do PSAs every three months for the first year and then MRI and biopsy at one year. Okay.
0: Yeah, this is, this is fantastic. You know, I think it at least walks us through in some detail, patient selection, the day of, and at least that early follow-up up to a year, then clearly there's gonna be some schedule of PSAs and MRIs and biopsies over the ensuing time frame. And Song, I think you very nicely kind of discussed how this is a commitment from all the key stakeholders here. There, there's still some prostate that hasn't been treated and so on. So incredibly valuable. And maybe now we'll just kind of shift gears a little bit about starting the program, kind of maybe a walk down memory lane and I'll share an experience. So when I started here at UC San Diego, there's this kind of idea of really having a whole suite of options available to patients, of course, surgery and radiation. As I mentioned, we have HIFU, we have cryo and we're looking at Tulsa and I was like, oh, great. I am familiar with this procedure, at least through the patients that have been treated at my previous institution, UT Southwestern, and started kind of digging into it. And, And the first thing was that none of our MRIs at multiple hospital locations, et cetera, were compatible with the kind of profound technology. So let's maybe kind of run through the nitty gritty, a urologist or a group or a hospital has decided that we're going to commit to this. So what what are kind of the 101s? Maybe I'll just throw out there MRI compatibility. Either you've got one that's
1: compatible or you need to get one that's compatible. Can you comment on that? Yeah, certainly a joint effort from the different departments and the hospital administration and does require the desire to work together and the ability to work together. We've talked about this in other instances. I am very comfortable And it's a great source of joy working with urology. And that is to a great extent a result of our collaboration in the targeted biopsy field. I think the targeted biopsy brought radiology and urology together for good. And it's a great example of us partnering to advance the field and help the patients. It's a great opportunity to have accountability to have urologists. It's a great opportunity to have radiology learning from the feedback that we receive from the biopsies performed by urology. And it's a great opportunity for urology to see the added value of imaging in the patients that they manage. So I see that as a great opportunity for both departments to work together better than they would do separately. And it is a huge building block for any focal therapy program. When it comes to building the focal therapy program when it comes to the time let's say you want you're considering starting a tulsa program there is a checklist to go through and one of them you mentioned the details the mri compatibility the mri compatibility used to be more an issue at the beginning when the device was just released but the company continued to work to make their software compatible with other vendors and different platforms from all the vendors. There are also compatibility issues when it comes to the room. You have to have access, like a panel that allows you to access the room. These are all things that can be sorted out if there is willingness to put that effort, but it does require some planning. I would say as of today, probably these aren't that much of a, an issue as they were two or three years ago both because the companies the company has worked to address these compatibility issues, but also because it's much more standardized what needs to be done. I think it's very important that the stakeholders meet to understand what they want to accomplish and why they want to embark on such a journey and go over the different technologies that exist out there and why they would choose one or the other, or maybe a few of them. I think what we're learning is that there is no perfect focal therapy solution that solves or that is able to provide great treatment for every single patient. So I think as this brainstorm happens, maybe getting to a point where you're able to offer solutions that complement one another or that have the ability to truly expand the patient population that you're able to offer focal therapy would make perfect sense. But I would emphasize the importance of that partnership. As you very well said, I think you can see a a Tulsa patient journey in three stages. The pre-Tulsa assessment that requires a lot of baseline risk stratification, vetting those patients with high quality imaging, with imaging pathology, concordance review. Then there is the Tulsa treatment day where there needs to be expertise in device handling, delineating the area to be treated, accounting for things that we talked about, gland swelling, motion, to make sure that you're treating the patient properly. And then there is a third third stage, which is the post-Tulsa, and that's treating, it's managing a patient that had a cancer treated, plus the knowledge of what are the potential complications that are specific to a Tulsa procedure. So when we look at those three different stages, I think you can certainly see that we need the expertise from well, from all the stakeholders
2: and to echo some of daniel's points you know certainly i think some of the logistical stuff you know mr compatibility i think the company profound will come out and do kind of their analysis and then let you know what you need or what you don't need but from a programmatic standpoint i think you kind of not only have urology radiology you kind of need buy-in from you know your medonks your radonks because a lot of times what we found recently is that like you said you know this patient's coming in with high-risk disease or low-risk disease, or in rare cases, metastatic disease, or asking for Tulsa. And you need to be able to have the ability to say, no, you're not a good Tulsa candidate, go see my radiation oncology colleague, go see my medical oncology colleague. As a certain point, we're kind of the gatekeepers and we need to make sure that these patients are getting the appropriate care, regardless of where they need to go to get that care. And sometimes it's Tulsa and oftentimes it's not Tulsa. Sometimes they're better served by radiation, sometimes they're better served by surgery.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I've had the good, fortunate pleasure of observing the close collaboration between radiology and urology at uh, UT Southwestern. It's unique, it's special. And I think it's what allows this type of program to to be rolled out in a careful and considerate way. And, you know, Daniel, you mentioned the third aspect of this is commitment from, from hospital administration. You know, when I think about hospital administration, I'm thinking about dollars and cents here. Ballpark, what are we what are we talking about in terms of capital costs to initiate the program? And are actually these are these procedures now covered by
1: insurance? Yeah. So there are lots of nuances to this answer. As of today, there is no billing code for Tulsa. If the procedure is done at a hospital, the hospital can bill for C codes and Most of our patients are either Medicare patients or a mixture of Medicare plus private payers. And the hospital is being reasonably paid for the cost of this procedure. In regards to capital costs, the model that the company right now chose to have is you pay for the disposable kit for each patient. So you don't have to buy any equipment upfront you just pay for the disposable kit. The lack of a billing code results in suboptimal reimbursement for the professional fees. As of today, the urologist and the radiologist involved are not properly reimbursed for this procedure if this is in a managed care or Medicare patient. There are facilities that are choosing to have a cash-pay-only approach to this, and that's a, a different story. Now the company is partnering with professional societies to submit an application for CPT code for Tulsa. And the expectation is that this would be done later this year. So by early 2025 is the best case scenario for us to be able to bill for this from a professional fee standpoint. Okay. I think that was a comprehensive
0: answer to what sounds like a complicated, ongoing, evolving issue. Well, hey, you know, I think that I've certainly learned a lot about the program, about the details of it. I think it's exciting. I think it's accessible, but it really takes a pretty serious commitment. And I would imagine that, you know, there's opportunities for proctoring, for courses and things along those lines to kind of learn more about this and see if this could be a, a good
2: fit for an individual's practice or institution. Is that is that accurate? We've certainly hosted a few of the physicians who are interested in, in studying their cultural programs here. I think Profound now has rolled out a few different sites where they're allowed to host physicians. We haven't had this set up at UT and, and partly because it's due to conflicts, you know, where I'm the PI for the Captain Trial, Daniel is the PI for the Care Registry, which is the Tulsa Registry. There's some financial aspects of that. So we don't have UT currently open as a, a site where patients or physicians can come and kind of learn about it. We can do it kind of off, you know, we can do it through UT South bathroom So for instance, if you wanted to come over I fill out some paperwork, we can bring you down, spend a day with us in the in the suite and, and kind of do procedures. But I think they're setting up more formalized ways for them to do that as well.
0: Fantastic. Well, you know, again, I think that what you guys have been able to do, and maybe Song, if you don't mind, just a brief word on the CAPTAIN trial.
2: Yeah. So CAPTAIN trial, I think, is a, is a really good trial. You know, it's one of the few... I don't think we've had any really randomized trials comparing surgery to a focal ablative modality. In terms of this is a randomized two to one trial. So out of every three patients, two patients get randomized to whole gland Tulsa. One patient gets randomized to surgery. It's, I think it's the trial started in January twenty twenty two, and they're looking for about two hundred patients. I think we're probably about twenty percent accrual at the moment. It's multi center. It's from U S. and Canadian sites. And I've actually been surprised at the patients who've been agreeing to be randomized. You would think that a lot of these patients are like, I want this or that. And and these patients have been very generous with their time and give us the ability to randomize them. It's for only intermediate risk disease patients. So 3 plus 4, 4 plus 3, they have Gleason grade group 1, Gleason grade group 4, they're not eligible. If they have unfavorable intermediate risk disease, they need a bone scan or PSMA PET scan as part of the workup. But they get tracked very closely. They have surveys, they do a stretch penile length measurement uh, as part of it comparing you know, surgery versus Tulsa. I think it's a good trial. I really hope that it, it it meets its accrual and we get some useful data out of it.
0: Amazing. I mean, obviously that's kind of the alpha and the omega when it comes to answering these and, you know, I think shedding light on not just cancer control, but the functional outcomes is going to be amazing. So, you know, congrats for getting that off. That's that's clearly no small lift there. Well, hey, you know, I think like I could talk about this and pick your brain, but I do want to be respectful of your time. Maybe, and Daniel, we could start with you, just, just parting thoughts about... Tulsa, the role for it, developing a program as, as we kind of wrap up here.
1: First, thank you, Aditya, for the opportunity to share our, the beginning of our learning curve with, with our community. It's, we are fortunate to have been exposed to this technology early on. There is still quite a bit to learn about it and that discovery phase is is extremely exciting a big responsibility and it's great to be able to partner with urology uh, during that exploration uh, we certainly are committed to responsibly gathering the data that will help us understand what is the long-term outcome of these patients both quality of life and oncologic speaking and we will be more than eager to share that with our community as well it is as I said, not a plug and play technology. Something that is, again, both a responsibility to do it well, but also exciting that we can continue to learn as as we're doing these treatments. Perfect. Perfect. And Zhao Song, how about from your end? Yeah, I mean I think for me, you know, as a kind of a newer
2: faculty member, it's it's great to be in this area. I think it's a it's a very exciting time to be in this area, you know, whereas we're getting more and more treatments for these guys. And I truly believe that it's probably going to change how we treat guys with intermediate risk disease uh, moving forward probably in the next 10 or 15 years or so as, as more of these technologies come on board i think it's a you know it's a great technology i certainly enjoy using this technology it's not the end-all be-all for all prostate cancer treatments like daniel said i think you need complementary technologies if you're truly building out a program as patients are coming in you need to be able to treat patients with different modalities based on their anatomy and their characteristics I think it's a valuable tool in our armamentarium, similar to radiation and surgery and, and, you know, MR-LINAC and all these other technologies that that are coming on board. And it's a matter of directing patients to what we think is best for them. It's really kind of personalizing their cancer treatment, you know, and and in some ways. But I think it's, uh, you know, Daniel and I are certainly very, uh, you know, excited about this. We're very, even though we're busy, we're very happy to kind of talk to physicians, to feel free to kind of pass along my information if they have questions you want to come down, take a look at some cases, if they have patients that they have any questions about, feel free to reach out to me or Daniel. I'll be happy to answer those questions. Certainly, I've learned that these Tulsa patients are willing to travel. We've treated, you know, almost, I don't want to say almost like a quarter of our cohorts probably out from from outside the state of Texas, uh, where they're willing to travel for this technology. And it's it's the hot new technology right now. And There is certainly a long learning curve for it that we're learning about as we're doing it. But yeah, certainly happy to share all that experiences with anyone who's interested.
0: Yeah, I love it. I mean, I think the careful, responsible exploration and rollout of any type of new, really, technology or test or whatever you want to call it is kind of the mandate here. You know what I love about the program in Dallas is that I know that's precisely what's taking place. And I've certainly sent a couple of patients. Nothing could be easier, you know, personal contact, personal email for not just providers, but patients is provided. So, well, hey, you know, congrats to you all for what you've been able to do there. And, um, you know, I think that as we move forward, you know, these early experiences of a blink of an eye will be longitudinal studies, randomized trials, and, you know, it's always kind of exciting to be on the front end of practice-changing intervention. So, Thanks for your time. Wonderful to see you all. And until next time.
2: All right. Thanks, Aditya. Great seeing you as well. Thank you, Aditya.
0: Thank you so much for listening.
2: With
0: support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross,
1: and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. With
2: support from Devante Delbrun.
1: Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy lui Thanks again for listening and see you next week.